specifically when talking about the rut, the moon has no impact on when the majority of deer are being bred. And this is a really easy one to tease out because we talked earlier about that fetal scale and being able to figure out exactly when the majority of does are bred. We can take a look at that and then any given year compare it to when that full moon hits in the fall. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we're talking all things rut-related with NDA's Chief Conservation Officer and Wildlife Biologist, Kip Adams. Kip's no stranger to the show, having been on a couple times before, and he always brings a wealth of deer knowledge to the table. Uh, this week, I hit him with 10 rut-related topics or or commonly held beliefs about the rut among deer hunters, and I let him discuss those topics and in, in some cases bust some myths and set the record straight. This is one you definitely don't want to miss. Hey, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Whitetail Properties. If you have a dream of owning your own hunting land or you're in the process of looking for your first hunting property, be sure to check them out at whitetailproperties.com. They're the only land real estate company out there that requires their agents to become level two NDA deer stewards. So you know you're going to be dealing with someone who knows what to look for in a property for deer hunting and deer management. And hey guys, also don't forget our Gear for Deer sweepstakes is continuing through the end of the year. Uh, that fundraiser features a ton of great prizes from our friends at Quiet Cat, Performance Outdoors, First Light, and Tethered including a premium Illinois November rut hunt for 2024. Uh, that hunt, you can either do a bow hunt or a gun hunt. It's your choice. It also comes with a new Quiet Cat e-bike that comes in First Light camo. Over $1,500 in First Light gift cards will be awarded, as well as a few full saddle hunting setups from our friends at Tethered. All these prizes were generously donated by those great companies, so that means all the money we raise will go directly to NDA's mission to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. And hey, as much as I'd love to win that package myself, I'm not eligible, but you guys are. So be sure to hit the pause button on this episode. Head over to DeerAssociation.com slash gear for deer and get your chances today. And with that, guys, let's jump on the phone with Kip Adams to talk all about the whitetail rut. Well, hey, Kip, welcome back once again to the Deer Season 365 podcast. Um, before we kind of dive into all things rut related, I, I wanted to ask how your seasons have been going so far. God, well, man, I appreciate it. It's good to be here. And uh, I, I will tell you, my son shot a doe opening night of archery season. So uh, we, we got the season literally started off with, a, <laughs> I guess, with a figurative bang. Um, but it has been slow since. It has been really slow. So uh, I'm glad the rut's about here because uh, that, that can make things change in a hurry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I saw, I think I saw uh, the, the, the pictures of Bo's 
uh, opening day, opening day dough. So good deal. Uh, always enjoy keeping up with, with what you and your family have going on there and your hunting success. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how the rest of the season goes for you. Well, I'll tell you what, we have not had as good a year so far as you have. And, uh, both <laughs> of my, both of my kids are about ready to abandon uh, me as their guide. So, uh, you, if you get a phone call <laughs> or a text from, uh, from Katie or Bo, <laughs> you'll, you'll know what it's about. They want you to take them hunting. <laughs> there you go. Well, good deal. Well, I wanted to uh, I wanted to do this episode a little differently, I guess a little more structured than our average episode. And I've I've kind of jotted down ten aspects or common beliefs about the the whitetail rut, and I'm just going to kind of work my way down that list and and let you share the some facts and and kind of set the record straight for for each of those points. So. Um, if that's good with you, we'll we'll kick things off with the timing of the rut and specifically, you know, what is it that that triggers the onset of the rut for for any given location? Sure. Uh, timing wise, you know, most of the, the deer across the United States are going to rut around pretty much the same time. Um, you know, you get down into the southeastern U.S., it's a little different and uh, we can talk about that separately. But uh, most of the deer are going to rut in November. And uh, that's driven by photo period, which is the amount of daylight or hours in a day. So as, as we get into fall, you know, the amount of daylight decreases a little bit each day. A deer is able to de- detect that. Um, its brain uh, picks that up, changes uh, its hormone levels in the body, and uh, essentially lets deer know, hey, it's that time of the year. Breeding's about to begin. Uh, let's get ready. So for November is when it is for the vast majority of whitetail herds and whitetail hunters. Um, so, and, and that's purposeful because that coincides with about 200 days later is green up. And that's really what this all is predicated after is, um, you know, deer can rut a little earlier, a little later. So that's, that's not really a big difference for deer, but they rut at exactly this time to make sure that those fawns hit the ground when there, when there's resources for those does to, to be consuming so they can produce a bunch of high quality milk. So uh, that's really what it's all predicated after. And since their gestation is about 200 days long, that means most of us are going to have a rut that's going to peak uh, in early to mid November. Okay. And, and how do we know, you know, our, a lot of uh, state wildlife agencies will, will put out, um, you know, these, well, at least in the South here where there's some variants, they'll put out rut maps, but um, you know, they'll, they'll kind of let hunters know, okay, this is the, the peak breeding dates are, or this week or this two week period. How, how do they know that? Where do they get that information uh, other than, you know, obviously observation, we can see chasing and that kind of stuff, but, but to really nail it down to, you know, most of the deer are getting bred during this period. How are they, how's that monitored by, by biologists and state wildlife agencies? Well, you know, through lots of research, we know what the what the gestation period is for a deer, and it averages 195 to 200 days. Um, so, if we know when that deer is bred, we know when the fawn will hit the ground, and you know what, that works great if if you're looking at research deer, or captive deer. But as far as wild deer, the way that biologists and managers figure that out is uh, we have a uh, fetal scale. And this actually was developed by Mr. Joe Hamilton, uh, the founder of the organization that you and I work for. So from that, what you can do is you can pull fetuses from a deer that's been harvested late in the deer season or roadkill doe in the spring. And uh, so if you know what day or what approximate day that that doe died, 
you take that fetus and you can measure it. And on that fetal scale, you know how long it is. We know the day the deer died. So from that, we can estimate what day that doe was actually bred. So once a fetus is about 40 days old, it's long enough to be measured on that scale. So if, if you have a deer season where that ends shortly after your rut, then you can't get this data in season. But a lot of the seasons uh, today just go a lot longer than they used to, which means we can harvest does over 40 days after they were bred. So uh, when you're field dressing those deer, take a look and you can pull that little fetus out, uh, measure it. And by measuring one or two, you know, okay, yeah, we know when that deer was bred. But state after state after state, their wildlife departments have measured lots of fetuses, you know, hundreds and thousands of them. So that is enough to be able to figure out exactly, you know, when the rut occurs, when it starts, when it ends, and then when it peaks. So that's how we know very clearly for most of the U.S., independent of, you know, all these other environmental variables that we like to talk about as hunters, um, Mid, early to mid-November is when the vast majority of does are being bred. This is also then how we know in the Southeast, it's very different. Southeast is, has got a lot of cool things going for it, uh, in addition to, to good football teams. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's literally a rut in the Southeast from July through February. So, you know, you can, you can hunt deer that are rutting, you know, over seven different months. So uh, the Southeast is a lot different than, than the rest of the country uh, with regard, you know, to actual rut dates. And part of it is, you know, you're just a lot closer to the equator. You don't have nearly as bad winters as we do in the north. So uh, there's a lot more flexibility in those deer herds to have fawns hit the ground over a much wider window. Yeah. Well, what about uh, the, the second thing I wanted to touch on? And it, it kind of plays on this timing of the rut and you, you hinted to it a little bit there. But what, uh, you know, what role does weather play in the, in the rut timing? Because, you know, just, well, like right now we, we've had this uh, really cold snap here in Georgia ahead of, ahead of our peak, our typical peak rut dates uh, where, where I'm at here. So of course, you know, the hunters have been getting excited, getting out there, wanting to get in the stand, you know, catching to try to catch bucks on their feet and, and hoping that this really, you know, kicks off the rut activity. Uh, but, but does it, you know, does, does the weather have any influence at all on that timing of the rut? You know, you know given that I grew up in the Northern U S um, and I love to hunt cold weather, um, hunters across the Waitails range have been taught that cold fronts get deer on their feet. They're on their feet. You know, they got to feed more. They're going to feed ahead of that front. It's going to be good hunting. Um, and for a long time, you know, we believe that both hunters and deer managers. Well, now for the past decade and a half, we have researchers that have had the, the use of GPS collars on deer, on bucks, on does, on mature animals, on young animals uh, to be able to, to follow them around. And initially, yeah, we're following and looking at movement patterns. That's cool. But then we start realizing, man, we can now start tying all of these movement patterns to all of these environmental variables. Well, like weather. So, hey, when it's warm, do these deer move more or less? When it's cold, do they move more or less? And, uh, and this is a big one because so many hunters firmly believe that a cold front gets deer on their feet. Well, the research is really clear on this. And, and this research has been done in the North and the South and the Midwest. So all over the place that shows that cold fronts don't necessarily get deer on their feet. They're not making them move more. And I'm sure there's people listening to this that uh, are probably scrambling right now to get my email address and your email address <laughs> to, 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 to call us with some hate mail. But, uh, 
the reality is we know we can monitor weather before the fronts come in, see what the deer are doing, how far they're moving each day, how much they're moving, and then watch that as the front approaches, as the front goes through. And we can see that, you know, there, there's very little difference. Um, what is influencing deer movements this time of the year is just, you know, it's the rut. It is the amount of photo period, I mean, the amount of daylight. So the timing is making them move more. They're moving more this week on average than they were last week. And they were moving more on average last week than they were the week before, you know, independent of whether it was cold or whether it was hot. So like you, and I've heard you talk about this, I'm the same way. When a cold front is coming, I'm going to be hunting if I can. I, I, I Just because I love to hunt in that weather. But what I tell people is, you know, this time of the year, go hunting. Um, just because it's warm or if a cold front is not there, do not let that keep you on the couch. If it's in the fall, go. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be any worse because there's not a cold front coming. So uh, yet, uh, that's a hard one for a lot of people to swallow, but uh, literally millions of data points with GPS radio collars on bucks and doe show us that the, the weather this time of the year, um, colder, warmer, um, at least those to the heat part of that really is an influence in much deer behavior, deer, much uh, deer movement patterns. Yeah. So I, I think it's supposed to hit uh, 80 again here next week. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't hang up my bow and <laughs> sit on the couch then. <laughs> Man, if, I, if I'm with you or I'm you, uh, I'm going hunting. So uh, oh, given yeah. that it's early November, I, I don't care if it's 30 or 80, uh, that time of the year, go hunting. Yep. Yeah. That's my default answer. When somebody asks the best time to, the best time to go deer hunting anytime you can. <laughs> Good deal. Well, kind of along those, along those same lines, uh, another potential, uh, you know, rut influencer, at least that we, we hear hunters discussing is the moon phase. Uh, does that have any impact at all when, when, you know, peak deer breeding occurs or, or when it kicks off? This one is a, is a big one as well. And, and it, it again ties to a lot of the things, you know, that we were taught as, as young hunters by elders. And, uh, you know, the, the story goes that on full moons, deer will feed longer into the night, which means they will bed more the next day. So they're just not as active. So we hear that from a feeding end and then that gets tied into the rut part as well, saying, well, you know, that movement, does that change, you know, when that harvest moon is or that rutting moon? The reality of it is the moon has a lot of impact on fish cycles, um, but not on deer movement um, because deer are crepuscular, which means they move most at dawn and dusk. You know, fish don't. And that's why the moon has huge impacts, you know, on fish feeding cycles. And, and you know, a lot of hunters are also anglers. So they, they like to make that analogy, too. And while it does work pretty good in many cases with fishing, um, not at all with deer. Um Kind of like the, the weather patterns we just talked about, those same millions of data points, um, just as we can compare that movement to uh, temperature um, and other fa factors like snowfall, drought, rain, etc. We can look at the same thing with the moon phase and, and there's not a lot of difference relative to movement or feeding patterns based on moon phase. And then specifically when talking about the rut, um, the moon has no impact on when the majority of deer are being bred. And this is a really easy one to tease out because we talked earlier about that fetal scale and being able to figure out exactly when the majority of does are bred. We can take a look at that and then any given year compare it to when that full moon hits in the fall. And uh, that moon 
actual timing varies widely from year to year. Whereas we can see the actual rut dates or when those fawns are conceived, that's pretty, pretty tight, that window. That doesn't vary much at all. So uh, I understand that people can't hunt, you know, every day. I know I certainly can't. And uh, um, I know your boss listens to this, so I know you can't either. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, uh, so we try to pick the days, you know, that, that give us the best chance of seeing deer and, and having them move. So we, we want to grab onto anything we can, like barometric pressure, like temperature, like moon phase. But the reality of it is, you know, there is so much data now with GPS uh, points on deer that we just know that the moon has no impact on when deer are rutting. And that's a good thing because, you know, early on we talked about the need for deer to, to rut in November so that fawns hit the ground uh, at green up. Some years, you know, that, that full moon or what some hunters call, or, you know, the hunter's moon comes earlier in the year, which means that if that actually did determine when deer were going to be bred, you know, in some cases you'd have fawns on the ground, you know, way too early in the spring when it's still a lot of snow. Um, other years that moon may shift and be almost, you know, three weeks late. So now you've given up three weeks of good growing conditions before fawns are born. All of that fawn crop will go into the winter smaller than normal. So there, there's absolutely no advantage to a deer herd cue and breeding off that moon. And you know, whitetails are some of the oldest deer species we have. Actually, they are the oldest. You know, they've been around evolving for 4 million plus years. So uh, they've got it figured out how to time when those fawns need to hit the ground. And, and it's, it's all about photo period, um, not at all based on the moon. Okay. So if you want to know when the rut's going to happen in your area, your area it's uh, the same time as it happened last year and, <laughs> and the year before. <laughs> yeah, certainly within, you know, a few days of that for, for sure. It's, it's, not, it's not swinging widely by any means. Fortunately, that's really good. You know, we're lucky that it's like that. Yeah. And I guess I, I didn't have this necessarily down, but while we're talking about, you know, the fact that weather and, and moon phase don't really play a role in uh, the, the rut timing, what about in the timing of the time of day um, as far as, as deer movement? You know, you often hear people talk about, especially the moon phase, um, maybe not so much weather, but the moon phase, you know, causing deer to move at different times of the day. Uh, what do we know about that? Yep. Uh, researchers have looked at that as well. And, uh, you know, apogee and perigee, you know, whether the moon is overhead or if it's underfoot, um, a specific phase of the moon, um, taking a look at all that because there are some, some hunters and some really good hunters. I have some friends who are very, very good deer hunters, you know, that, that try to use some of those pieces like that to their advantage as well. And uh, they'll argue me about them. And, uh, and I'm saying, look, if it works for you, can continue to do it. I'm not going to argue with success. I'm just telling you, you know, there's no science there to back, to back up what you're saying. But uh, what researchers have seen relative to movement um, compared to moon phases, there are very slight differences with some of the phases. Um, not enough that the average hunter would even be able to detect it. Um, if you have enough data points, you know, from these, these uh, radio collars, and you can compare them to moon phase, you can see very slight differences um, occasionally relative to, to, to when deer are moving. But that, that's a uh, you know, pretty sophisticated technology with a lot of computer uh, analysis helping 
to me or you in the woods, um, it's nothing at all that we could even detect. You know, maybe one more deer we see today or one fewer deer we see uh, under a different moon phase. So it's not, it's not big swings by any means and certainly nothing um, after looking at all of that data that, that I even take into account for to, uh, to get closer to whitetails in the fall. Gotcha. Of course, I mean, movement overall during, during the rut is going to increase. So, I mean, I guess, you know, obviously hunting midday or hunting all day is, is not necessarily a bad strategy, but it's the, that peak deer movement is still going to be dawn and dusk, I guess. Exactly. And, uh, and you're right. Overall movement does increase during the rut. Um, you know, many research projects show that, you know, a, a buck's home range, you know, they, they're actually their amount of daily movements and proportions of the home range that they're actually using, you know, uh, might increase two to four times during the rut. They're just covering a lot more ground. So, uh, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, gosh, we're seeing deer all summer and then into the fall and boy, when rut comes suddenly, you know, sometimes you're not seeing as many or this buck that you've been getting a bunch of pictures of has disappeared. They're just traveling over so much more territory that, you know, they're just not where you have been seeing them on anywhere nearly as often a, a time schedule. So, yeah, they're going to move even during the rut, most at dawn and dusk, just like the rest of the year. But during the rut, they, they absolutely move more during daylight hours than the, the pre-rut or the post-rut or, you know, summertime or, you know, way outside of the rut. So, uh, yeah, this is the time of the year that uh, definitely be in the woods as long as you can. Because uh, they're not they're not resting nearly as much as they were a month ago, or as much as they will uh, here in another month during uh, during daylight hours. Right. Well, the next question I had because this is this is something that seems to um, you know I guess can confuse a lot of hunters, or maybe there a lot of it's terminology and 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 understanding about the rut and pre rut and and all that. But I, I mean, how long does the rut actually last? Uh, because I I think. Again, as hunters, we often think of it as, as this very narrow window, you know, maybe a one week period where we, we, you know, like you said, we need to be out there as much as possible. But is, is that the case? I mean, how, what, what kind of time frame are we talking about from the actual overall breeding period? In, in most places, it lasts as a minimum more than a month. Um, and I haven't said it, that means we can record fawn conceptions over you know, about a month and a half to two month period for the majority of the deer. So uh, take Pennsylvania, for example, the Pennsylvania Game Commission knows every year that the first does are going to be bred in October. They know that the majority of them are bred in November, but that some still get bred in December. Um, so there's a wide window when deer are actually breeding. However, the majority of that occurs over a pretty narrow window. So, you know, most does in Pennsylvania get bred in early to mid-November. And, and a lot of states talk about it over, you know, like a 10-day window is when, you know, a big slug of deer are going to actually be bred. Some will come into heat a little sooner, some a little later. And, and that's particularly true with fawns that are just hitting sexual maturity that first year. You know, they definitely come in a little later and and we can talk about that here uh, in a bit but uh most of those does get bred over short window at least in the you know northern two-thirds of the u.s now we spoke earlier about you know those that seven months uh, of deer riding somewhere in the southeast so once you get in the south that window expands a little bit because you're not as bound by winter or those that hardship but uh 
hunters often think of, geez, you know, it's only a few days and it's done. And then, you know, gosh, all over social media, people are killing big bucks. I heard my buddy say, I didn't see anything this week. I must have totally missed it. Well, the reality of it is the rut can be a very fickle time to hunt. It, it can be all or nothing. You're in the right spot and it, you know, it's like candy land. I mean, there's just deer moving all around you. You know, conversely, you can only be a couple hundred yards off and can have one of the quietest sits of the whole year. You know, there's no hot does around you. And uh, so the party is just somewhere else. So um, th- there's a lot to think about relative to the, the actual uh, length of time it lasts. But in areas that, where deer herds are managed well, meaning they have, you know, good age structure on both sides, most of those does are bred over, you know, about a 10 day window, even though technically that rut is going to last, you know, a month and a half or in some cases, two months or more. Gotcha. Yeah, and what role does genetics play in that? Like if, if I have a property and, you know, I, I got a, a hot doe out here on, uh, you know, the, the 7th of November, you know, if, if, if that doe's still around the following year, what's, what's the odds of that? I mean, is she going to come into heat about that same time every year? Is that something that's genetic or, or are there other factors there? That's a great question. And yes, that is very much tied to genetics. Um, when we said that the Southeast has those rut dates that are all over the board, um, back in the early 1900s, when deer were restocked to numerous states, um, based on where those deer came from, um, has a large tie in today to how wide some of that rut variation is in the Southeast. And, uh, and what researchers have found is it's, it's tied very closely to the genetic makeup of the population of deer that they restock those areas. So that's why in Georgia, um, you know, you can find multiple different ruts within that state, partly because deer were restocked to Georgia from Texas, from Wisconsin, and from other places. And, uh, and it appears that when they were genetically tied to breeding, uh, you know, where they were from, they have brought that with them and it's carried on here for, uh, for nearly 100 years now. So, yeah, I think that whether you're in Pennsylvania or Georgia or anywhere else, uh, that doe from year to year, when she is going to come into heat, uh, is very, very close to the same time. And uh, there's definitely a strong genetic component to that. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen it. And again, I'm, I'm of course, I'm down here in Georgia where, where we have the kind of varied rut, depending on where you're at in the state. And, uh, you know, the DNR puts out a rut map, the, kind of a county by county map of, of when the peak breeding dates tend to occur. And, uh, you know, it never fails that, that when they share that or post it on social media, you get the you get the guys saying, well, that's not right for where, you know, where I hunt. And, you know, I assume a lot of that is tied to, to that, uh, you know, genetics just because. Uh, you know, they have, they have it based on the county level, but that doesn't mean that, you know, this property over here, a, a doe might be coming into heat, you know, weeks later than, than one on a, a different property. Now that's right. And I vividly remember, uh, first job I had out of graduate school was for the state of Florida. Uh, I was in central Florida. I lived on the East end of Kissimmee, uh, worked out in Holopaw on the triple N ranch WMA, um, never been to the South my entire life. I went to undergrad at Penn State, went to grad school at University of New Hampshire, very much a northerner. And uh, just thought, you know, that that's, I was taught when the rut was and how it happened. And that was it. And knew very little about deer herds in the Southeast. Well, when I landed in, in Central Florida that first year, I remember some of the local hunters talking about, 
uh, on the WMA that I was working on. Yeah, well, here, you know, deer rut this time here. And, you know, the other end of Kissimmee or, uh, you know, it's about a month later. And I remember thinking, sure it is. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, so, because, uh, you know, hunters say all kinds of things, myself included. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of myself as a hunter. You know, I've said a lot of things that I at one point believed that just simply weren't true. Um, but anyway, they start talking about, you know, different ruts in Florida, and, you know, not that far apart. They rut entirely different. And I'm just like, okay, whatever, whatever. Well, then I start talking, you know, to the biologists that are there you know, who were from that area and are teaching me about deer in the Southeast. And they're like, oh yeah, that's true. And I remember just being totally flabbergasted, like, well, that can't be true. And they're like, it absolutely is true. And then we started doing some research and, you know, and started validating some of that and, and looking at those. And so uh, for somebody who's in the North, who's never been to the South, um, people listen to this podcast today, if you're, if you're a Northern hunter, it, uh, it's pretty crazy, you know, how closely some of those subpopulations of deer in the Southeast breed at very different times. So, uh, you know, that, that would never happen in the North, but, uh, it happens every year in the South and that's pretty routine occurrence. Yeah. Yeah. If you go one County West of where I'm at, they, they have a traditional November, I think around mid November rut. And then all you have to do is is cross the Chattahoochee River over into Alabama and you're in a January rut. And that's that just blows my mind that, you know, you would think or I would think over time that that, you know, the, the I guess the genetics would would get mixed enough to where that would kind of, you know, level out. But and maybe it will over hundreds and hundreds of years. I don't know. But um, it, it's it just blows my mind that it's stayed um, separate like that for so long. Yeah, I was surprised when the researchers were really looking at it, trying to figure it out. Um, in my mind, I would have guessed that it had a lot more to do with the management regime. Um, long deer seasons in the southeast. So, you know, I figured it probably had more to do with just timing of when we were harvesting the majority of those does in those different areas is what, you know, we were alter artificially forcing either a really early rut or a late rut. Um, but it turned out that that wasn't the case at all. You know, they were just so tied genetically to, you know, deer in the Southeast have a much wider window of when they can come into heat. And um, so uh, that genetic, the genetic tie-in was so strong. So, you know, a hundred years in, it's, it's maintained. Uh, you're right. Maybe another hundred, uh, you know, it may be changed a little bit, but uh, it's, it's going to take a lot of harvest effort, I think, from our end to change that, um, given how how tight that, that genetic link is. Yeah. All I know is I'm glad I'm not having to hunt that July rut down in the Everglades. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'm with you on that one. Oh, man, that's, that, that one's mind-boggling. But Guys, I wanted to take just a quick break from the interview to let you know that the work we do here at the National Deer Association wouldn't be possible without support from partners like Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops, and Cabela's, as well as all their customers throughout North America. A grant from the Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's Outdoor Fund is helping support the NDA's national initiative called Improving Access, Habitat, and Deer Hunting on Public Lands with the goal of improving 1 million acres of federal and state-controlled lands by 2026. Uh, this grant is directly accelerating the work in this initiative to address forest vigor and access issues in six different states. In the end, this will address declines in deer hunter numbers, Habitat quality and hunter access, helping to improve wildlife conservation for generations to come. Now back to the show. 
Now, I guess what about the kind of shifting gears here? What, what what about the dreaded the dreaded lockdown phase? You know, moving later in the rut here, where hunters report you know this major dip in buck activity because you know in theory they're all locked up tending tending to does and estrus. Is that a legitimate concern? Yeah. So the the lockdown part of it is absolutely legitimate. And uh, what's happening here is most people think about a rut as Hunters want to hunt the rut because they picture that as the time that deer are running all over the place and movement is, is at its highest point. Well, in reality, what's happening is as hunters, we want to hunt just before the peak of the rut. That's when movement is at its, its height. You know, once deer are actually breeding the most, then we're not seeing nearly as much movement. And what's happening is those does come into heat. They'll stay in, in heat for 24 to 36 hours. And bucks will breed them repeatedly during that time. Well, since the majority of does come into heat over a pretty narrow window, what that means is, you know, most deer in an area are eligible for breeding. So bucks are with those does. And when they're with the doe, they're just simply not moving much at all because they want to stay right with her and try to defend, you know, their ability to breed her from other bucks. So that truly is the, the lockdown phase where they're not out searching anymore. They're with somebody. And because most does come in over a short window, most bucks can also be locked down with does over a very narrow time. So uh, that can be a really lonely time to hunt uh, you know, when, when all those does are in heat like that because you know, there's just not anywhere near the amount of movement or the craziness that as hunters we crave, you know, that there was, you know, a week or two earlier. So um, the lockdown phase is absolutely true. And I think as hunters, sometimes when we feel it's lockdown, it actually is because those deer are down. Other times... Uh, it's just because we're just not in the right position. You know, the party's happening, bucks are going up, running all over, but we're just removed from that action a little bit. So, uh, but the, the lockdown part is certainly not fun from a, from a hunter's end. That, that can make for some really lonely sits and, um, you know, some pretty quiet outings. Yeah, absolutely. What about uh, the second rut? You know, we, we hear hunters talk about a, a second peak of rutting activity. Um, often, you know, about a month after the initial rut, is is that a real occurrence? And and what's uh, if so, what's driving that? Uh, this this is a real occurrence. Um, maybe not for the exact reasons that a lot of hunters believe. Um, historically, hunters would say all those does that didn't get bred on that first rut, you know, they come back into heat approximately twenty eight days later. That's the second rut in the northern U.S. Hunters talked about that probably didn't happen. And, and the reason I say that is even in Pennsylvania, where historically almost all the bucks were only one and a half years old, research showed that the vast majority of does were bred on the first ester cycle. So they were, they were all bred by yearling bucks, but they were bred. They were not missing. Where we did see, you know, that second rut that actually did happen was in the South and particularly the Southeast because you had such long deer seasons and such skewed harvest where basically hunters were shooting bucks. You know, they were just shooting very few does that they would shoot bucks and bucks and bucks and bucks. So by the time the actual rut occurred, the sex ratio was skewed so badly that 
there really were populations where there just weren't enough bucks to breed all of the does on that first cycle. Uh, in the north, much lower buck bag limits, much shorter seasons, so that couldn't happen. In the south, with higher buck bag limits and longer seasons, that absolutely could happen. So some of the does are bred. The ones that weren't, 28 days later, they would cycle again. That would be the second rut, and they'd be bred. The, that's largely been removed today. That that really does not happen anywhere because of better management. We understand more about the biology of the animal, you know, and how to take uh, better care of it. So, with regard to season dates, bag limits, and all that, that that reason for the second rut is largely gone, and that's a very good thing. Now, where we do see some of that second rut today, though, it's usually not adult does that weren't bred. It's usually fawns that are breeding. So it's a much uh, less intense uh, rut overall. But from the biology side, if a fawn, so take the fawns that are born this year. Um, if those doe fawns hit 70 to 80 pounds live weight this fall, they become sexually mature and they can breed. And in areas where they have access to higher quality nutrition, so basically areas that are better managed, and where those fawns might have been born a little earlier, so they had a little longer growing period, a certain percentage of those fawns will hit sexual maturity. But unlike their mothers that, that breed in, in basically November, a lot of those fawns don't get heavy enough until December or in some cases even January. So that's why most does are bred in November. Boy, a month later or just over a month later, some of those fawns come into heat. And man, that can be crazy fun hunting then because there's not very many deer that are in heat, but there's a lot of bucks out there that, you know, that still know what's going on. So you can see some really intense rut activity again um, for, you know, a much smaller pool of does that are, that are actually uh, eligible to be bred. So from a biology standpoint, it's good to measure the percentage of those fawns that hit sexual maturity because that is a tremendous index to herd health. Because those fawns have to have access to really good nutrition. So there are states in the U.S. that almost none of the fawns hit sexual maturity that first year. Um, conversely, there are places in the Midwest where somewhere, you know, upwards of 25 to 50% of those fawns will hit sexual maturity. So uh, biologists like to monitor that to keep tabs on herd health. And then from a hunting end, Man, it, it can be a ton of fun if you're in an area where it does have, you know, some deer coming in late. But for, from hunter end, I think it's important for hunters to know once upon a time, there truly was a second rut from a mismanagement standpoint, or I would say a misharvest standpoint on our behalf. So fortunately, that's largely gone today. So any of the second rut we see now um, is usually a sign of pretty good management because those fawns are, are getting enough nutrition to, to, to hit sexual maturity. So I see that as a bonus. Yeah, I know. Uh, of course, it was pri prior to me moving moving down south here, but uh, you know, I've, I've heard the stories of when you know some of these states you could you could literally shoot a buck a day across the entire deer season, and of course that just seems crazy now. But uh, you know, that was I guess that was the norm for decades. So. Yeah, and I I think that still is the norm for parts of South Carolina. <laughs> you know, or, or so you know they have such you know the longest deer season in the country and, and high buck bag limits. So uh, you know the one good thing is that the culture of hunting has changed, and the average hunter today just understands so much more about the benefits of protecting some of those younger bucks. Um, but yeah, you know, in the past, you know, 
we like to shoot bucks for sure. And uh, so they'd get after them and they'd get after them good. Yeah, it's it's been an adjustment for me just to to be able to shoot. Uh, not not that I always do, but to to have the opportunity to shoot two bucks. You know, I grew up grew up in Kentucky hunting that where it was always you know you got one buck and and you were done. And uh, you know now I, I gotta I gotta admit I, it is nice to have that that second one. You can you can be a little choosier on, on the second one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's I know you're right. It's so much in how we were growing up or, you know, with the culture of hunting, um, same with me growing up in Pennsylvania, it's always been a one buck state. Um, I vividly remember several years ago, we had an article in quality white tails and I was talking with Lindsay about it and, uh, the author, it was an incredible story, great story, incredible hunt where, where they killed two bucks and killed two really nice bucks. Uh, it's the same day or like back to back days. And, uh, as I was editing it, the first one, I was so excited because I knew the hunter and this is great. And I I vividly remember when they killed the second one, it really took away from the story for me. And I said something uh, to, to Lindsay, you know, our, our uh, chief communications officer and editor of the magazine about it. And he said, well, why did it take away from me? It's legal and this is great. I said, I know, but just from how I grew up, a one buck a year, it it felt, you know, almost like being a little greedy. Taking that second <laughs> yeah. one. So, and he said, look, you know, you're from the North. If you were from the South, I promise you, nobody thinks they were being greedy. And I said, I don't either. I'm just saying where you grow up, where you were only allowed one, um, it, it is very different where you are allowed to take multiple ones. So uh, it, uh, but, but that's one of the things that's the beauty about, you know, deer hunting and deer management is that every state is different. You know, everybody has their own recipe that makes it work so well. So. That's one of the things that I that I find so fun about managing deer uh, across the range. Yeah, absolutely. When uh, in the last few weeks, uh, and I imagine you've you've seen similar. I've, I've started to come across you know tons of, of fresh scrapes and and rubs while I've been out there hunting. Uh, even got to watch a, a couple bucks make scrapes from the deer stand, which is pretty cool. But what what role do those scrapes and rubs play in the rut? Um, very important role and um, not even just in the rut, but they're the most important ways that deer communicate throughout the year. Um, deer actually will scrape all 12 months of the year. Um, they, they tend to scrape a lot more during the rut um, and hunters certainly see that as a rut behavior, but, uh, but that actually is something they'll do all the time. Um, and it's, it's clearly to share information about themselves and to communicate with other deer in the area. I tell people if you're in an area, you know, that, you know, forested or area that, you know, with a lot of vegetation, even if you just go out and expose some dirt, even if you don't urinate in it or there's no deer urine in it, just the exposed dirt, deer will absolutely go right to that and check it out because it's how they communicate. You know, it's their signpost. You know, it's that bulletin board with the, with the uh, business cards on it or, you know, it's somebody's, you know, social media chat room where everybody goes and looks. So those are very intricate ways that deer can leave information about themselves and then exchange information with others. So, uh, you know, let's talk about the rubs for a minute. As hunters, we love to see rubs because, you know, eh, we think that's where deer get the velvet off their antlers and they're tearing that tree up. And, and those are true, but there's even more going on there. The, the, the second most important gland on a deer's body is this forehead gland. And researchers from the University of Georgia have identified nearly 50 different pieces of information that deer can tell about themselves through increased glandular activities during the rut. So 
you know, when a buck is rubbing on a tree, you know, they often, they'll break that cambium layer with their antlers. That releases aromatics. Deer can smell that. Deer can see that. And then they rub their forehead gland on it. So what they're doing is they're, that's their calling card that they're leaving there for other deer to come through to come and check. So uh, it's a pretty cool way to, to share information. And that's what's going on at those rubs. And, and some rubs get rubbed, you know, once a year and that's it. But as, as you're well aware, some rubs are on big trees. Um, that are used year after year, you know, they're, they're like community rubs. You know, if you're in an area that doesn't have a lot of trees, I've been in places say in Kansas where there are no overstory trees where every deer in the area will come and rub the telephone pole. Uh, or I've been and seen this in Illinois and North Dakota as well, where they rub fence posts, you know, and rub them, you know, almost in half. So, uh, yeah, they, that's, they're sharing information and that's a really cool way to get it. From our end, it's the perfect spot to put a trail camera because, you know, we get a snapshot of who's in the area and, and what's going on. So that's kind of the rub from the scrape end, though. Very similar thing. That's a signpost behavior. This one involves a little more, though, because rather than rubbing their forehead gland, you know, the, the scrape itself, we think of as that exposed dirt on the ground. But that licking branch overhead is the thing that, that's really important. Deer will mouth that, they lick it, they rub their preorbital gland on it, they smell it, they mouth it some more. They want to get just the right concoction of their smell there. You know, and then they go to the scrape below that, they paw the leaves away or the expose that dirt. They may urinate in it. And if they do, they may either just urinate straight in it or, you know, over their tarsal glands, which is the most important gland on a deer's body, those on the inside of their back legs. So in doing so, you know, they're carrying some of that smell on them. They're leaving some of it there for others to, to, to get. So uh, it's, a, it's a pretty intricate way to exchange information and, uh, and deer do it really well. And certainly your listeners just got to hear Miranda or Miranda Wong on here talking about her research at Mississippi State with all that scrape stuff. So uh, as hunters, we love that because we learn a little more about deer behavior and all of that helps us get a little closer to them in the fall. Yeah. And man, they just, they never cease to amaze me just that it's, it's amazing to me. And and I just said this on the, the last podcast with Kelsey Domeni, but um, just how much we still don't know about them. You know, they're, they're so prolific and, and they've been researched, you know, a ton, but, but we're still learning stuff all the time. And just like all that communication stuff, it's just, uh, it's amazing to me. Yeah. You know, from my end, um, I love to run trail cameras. So, you know, I have cameras on, on rubs. Um, I'm a bigger scrape fan though. You know, if I only have one camera, I'm going to put it on a scrape as opposed to a rub, um, just for some of the really cool behavior that you get to see there. And, uh, and I've, I've just been more fortunate at capturing, I think a higher number of deer and a higher percentage of bucks in an area at scrapes as, as opposed to rubs. But, uh, both of those, from a hunter standpoint, are great places to scout from. From a hunting end, um, I'm a wildlife biologist and I love what I do, but uh, I, I come at this from from a, a hardcore hunter mentality for sure, you know, and try to learn what I can to share with others. In many cases, to, you know, to to be able to to get close to deer in the fall, and uh, the research for scrapes still shows that it's one of the primary ways that deer communicate. Um, but most of it's done at night, you know, somewhere around 80, 84% of scrape use occurs, you know, when we can't shoot them. Um, now there's probably somebody that's listening to this thinking, man, I've killed a bunch of deer over scrapes. You know, that guy's wrong. Well, 
if it's 84% at night, that still means, you know, somewhere around 16% is during the day. So, you know, it's not all at night. So if you are successful hunting scrapes or you enjoy that, man, keep doing it. Um, but just because a lot of that happens at night doesn't mean we can't use that to our benefit. You know, and what I often think is, man, in the morning when deer are on their way back to, to, to cover or on their way back to bed, you know, if they're going to hit that scrape, maybe they do hit it just before daylight. But that often means then it may be after daylight before they get back to, you know, where they want to bed. So rather than hunting right over a scrape, if I know where some fresh scrapes are, then it can find some really good cover near that. I will position myself, you know, closer to that cover and just try to catch them there during shooting hours, you know, after they've hit that scrape and then, you know, vice versa at night. So I think, I think there's definitely neat things about a scrape for hunters to understand and, uh, and things that can definitely help them from a hunting standpoint as well, understanding, you know, the timing of when some of those are used and uh, just be able to put ourselves uh, in a position to see that deer during shooting hours. Yeah. And, and you were talking about <clears throat> just exposing dirt and the, the deer, you know, picking that up. I, I, I saw that, I guess, a, a few years ago. Um, I, and I'd made some mock scrapes before, you know, more closer during the rut when the actual scrapes were on the, you know, hitting the ground. Uh, but I'd went to put out some trail cameras on some public land, probably mid to late June. Uh, just as the antlers were starting to develop. And of course, obviously you can't, you know, put any bait out or anything on public land. So, you know, you try to find other ways to, to get a deer in front of your camera. And so I, you know, I made a mock scrape right there, exposed the dirt and made sure there was a, a good licking branch above. And I, I was amazed. That's the first time I'd ever made one, you know, that time of year. And uh, I mean, I think it, either that night or the night after they were already, you know, showing up at that, at that mock scrape and, and, you know, I didn't see much activity as far as far as I'm pawing at the ground, but they really, <clears throat> really worked that licking branch. Um, you know, everyone that would show up, it was, it was just cool to see, you know, even, even during the summer months, they, when they seen that exposed dirt, they, they checked it out. Yeah. And you know what, if you get a doe that has, has visited scrapes, because, you know, we often talk about them being buck areas, but, but man, does check them too. Does want to know who's been in the area. And in a lot of times, you know, does will, will urinate in a scrape as well. You know, leave her calling card. Um, a few years ago, and this is an article I wrote for us um, relative to scrapes. It was a end of our deer season. I remember it was a slow season. The guys at our camp were really razzing me for, you know, they hadn't seen much. And, uh, well, uh, I had a camera literally within sight of our camp in the woods. Um, I had put it over scrape. And uh, so now we're talking either, this was probably late November at this point, maybe early December. So uh, I go and check it, a bunch of pictures on it. Midday, I throw them into my computer. It, gee, there must have just been a hot doe in that area because, and I won't remember the exact number of pictures, right? But it was something like, you know, over a two or three or maybe four day window. It had 88 pictures of like 20 different bucks oh, <laughs> at, at that scrape within sight of our camp. You know, and we had, and almost all of them were at night. So a few were during the day. But, uh, you know, at a time where, you know, we're not seeing deer, or it had been a little slow. And so as I'm flipping through it, I'm like, oh, my God, you know, we play a lot of pranks on each other at camp. And at one point I thought like somebody has taken my card and like 
superimposed a bunch of deer in <laughs> here or change the deer. It's like just messing with me. But uh, I mean, it was all legit. And uh, I'm sure it was, you know, there just happened to be a hot doe in the area. I bet she urinated in that scrape too. It was around there. And man, there, and it, there a couple of the bucks were really unique. One of them was, uh, had, had been injured. It had a real crazy antler on the one side. I had never seen it before. Well, it turned out I shared it with some friends and uh, a buddy of mine who had land a couple of miles away. That deer had been at his place all fall and uh, it showed up here. It was at my place for you know, like a few hours one night and then was gone. So, uh, I mean, just shows you the power of those signpost areas, you know, where they are going to communicate. And uh, so that was pretty cool. It was very eye opening, though, you know, relative to, you know, really how many deer can come to those and, you know, when who, who's exchanging information when. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to, like you said earlier, uh, in the rut, it's, it's all about timing and location. You know, if you're in the right place at the right time, you can just have the, the best hunt of your life. And, or you could be, you know, 200 yards away from it and, and think there's not a deer in the, in the country. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, what about, uh, I think, I think one common perception that, that we as hunters often have is that the, the largest, most dominant bucks will keep those smaller bucks at bay, you know, chase them off the does and, and get to do the majority of the breeding. But uh, what, what does research show? Is that the case? Well, you know, this is another one of those things that deer managers used to believe that um, in large part because that absolutely is true with elk. Uh, it's true with uh, Alaskan moose. Um, you know, those bulls get that harem of cows, they guard them all. And when those cows come into heat, that individual bull breeds them all. So we used to think the same thing happens with deer. Well, along comes science uh, again, and we realize that's not true at all. And uh, and that's a good thing for us <laughs> as hunters. It's, it's fortunate that's not. Um, the reason that it's not true with deer is because deer's breeding ecology is very different from elk um, in that. Rather than deer coming into heat, you know, all synchronized with one animal, most does come into heat over a pretty short time, but an individual buck doesn't have access to an entire harem like that bull elk does. Deer are individuals, you know, they're spread out, even though, you know, they may spend time together and group up, you know, they don't stay as a group from a breeding standpoint, you know, they're more of one-on-one -on -one breeders. So what that means is when the majority of does come into heat over a pretty short window, they're being bred by different bucks. So because of that, a dominant buck cannot monopolize the breeding. You know, he may stay with that doe for, well, he may be with her a day waiting for her to come into heat. And then he'll breed her repeatedly during that 24 to 36 hours she is in heat. And once she's done, then he'll go on the move. So, you know, he might be with her from one to three days. Well, Given that most does are bred, you know, over about a 10 day window, if he's with one doe for two to three days, that just doesn't give him the ability, you know, to breed a lot of does. Uh, there's been a lot of research now looking at the, you know, the genetics of deer and seeing who is siring who. And the reality of it is uh, bucks don't end up siring that many deer that, that actually get recruited into the deer herd, you know, just because they can't monopolize the breeding. Um, that's also why, you know, a lot of young bucks get a little bit of the breeding as well. And it's also, I, which I think is a really cool part of this. We know that about a quarter of twin fawns aren't true twins. They have different fathers. So, uh, if a doe gets bred, an egg is fertilized, 
during that heat cycle, if she's bred again, it can fertilize a separate egg. So it's not like one egg is fertilized and it's split. So if she's bred twice, can have twin fawns, but they are separate eggs. And in about 25% of the cases, they're fertilized by separate bucks. Uh, And if you think about it, from a buck standpoint, you don't have to be the biggest, baddest buck in the county. You just have to be the biggest buck that happens to be with that doe when she comes into heat. You know, so you just got to be Johnny on the spot. So a lot of young bucks um, ha- happen to be the only deer there. The does in heat, they breed her. And then at some point during that heat cycle, a bigger buck may come along. And if so, he displaces that little buck. That bigger buck then breeds that doe. She has twin fawns. One of them is fathered or sired by the little buck. One is sired by the older buck. So, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty fascinating thing about whitetails from a management standpoint. Man, that really safeguards us to let us know that, you know, that, that we can't really mess up what's going on in the whitetails from a breeding end because uh, they're pretty resilient and uh, can correct a lot of our, uh, a lot of the things that we may have messed up from a management standpoint, you know, a long time ago. So another cool thing about them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess to kind of finish things off, um, I, I'd love to hear your your personal rut hunting strategy. And and you you touched on a little bit there as far as you know how you would set up on a scrape, but what what's some other tactics that, that you take during the rut that might be different from from other times in the season? Well, I, I know that I I am a fan of late October and early November go hunting. Every chance you can go. And if it's September or early October, you know, you're not seeing anything. Um, strategies really aren't working. Deer aren't moving a bunch. Um, yeah, you know, go ahead, take a day off or a couple of days off. Now, that's not true this time of the year because literally things can change in an instant. You know, perfect example this fall. I, my sits have been pretty slow lately. You know, as we joked about at the beginning, you know, with my son or with my daughter, uh, you know, we haven't seen nearly as many deer as we normally do. Um, but literally five minutes later, that can all change because Buck's home range is, is so much. They're using a larger portion of it now. They're moving a lot more. You know, now we have the ability to rattle and grunt, you know, and try to call deer in from a distance. So uh, my personal strategy this time of the year is I still want to try to be near food sources uh, because where those does are, bucks are, are going to be seeking those areas. So I do like food, but it, I, I have to be near cover. Um, I'm not going to just hunt food this time of the year. I absolutely want to be in cover. Perfect example this morning. Um, I was in a stand this morning, hunted for a couple of hours after daylight in an area that I could only see 15 yards. So uh, um, near a thick area, had a little food source right beside me. Um, so if a buck stepped into view or a doe stepped into view, it was going to be in bow range <laughs> immediately. So I want that cover, but I'm still thinking about food, not so much from the buck's end, from the doe's end though. But um, I think more than anything else, the strategy that's helped me be successful this time of the year is be resilient and just go hunting. You know, have a short memory. If, if you're not seeing much, go hunting because uh, it, it can absolutely happen. Um, so I'm going to gonna be out there this evening. As soon as my son gets home from school, we're going to be in a stand. Um, we're going to be grunting. I love to interact with deer. So I call a bunch this time of the year and uh, going to find some good cover. Going to make sure that I know that, uh, you know, where the nearest food supply is, but I'm going to be very close to cover and I'm going to call and uh, we're going to be sitting in the stand because it's November. 
Have you ever had any success uh, with decoys? We have. And actually we had um, two nights ago, we, uh, we grunted a, a small buck into a decoy and uh, we had a two decoy set. Um, actually, I, I'm a big fan of Montana decoys, um, the, you know, the flat ones that you can unfold because they're so easy to pack and uh, take with you. Um, I also have, you know, a, a flambeau decoy, you know, that we carry into big plastic things. So we don't use them a whole lot, but we always use them, um, I don't know, a handful of times to, you know, maybe five or six times a year um, just because it's fun. You know, it's neat to watch other deer interact with them. But uh, we uh, we grunted a young buck into our decoy two nights ago, um, saw two other really nice bucks that night. That, that was by far the, the best sit we've had here for a while. Um, the, the two larger bucks uh, were, were just out of bow range. Uh, one of them came in right at dark. Um, so, uh, didn't give us much of a chance uh, to, to interact with him, but, uh, um, but I do enjoy that. Um, my son loves it. My daughter thinks that it's pretty cool and, uh, it's neat just to watch, you know, the, the reaction of some deer, this young buck in particular, you know, we grunted, he came in, he was within 50 yards of us when he saw the decoy and he came flying to us. And as soon as, cause he heard the grunt, but as soon as he saw the decoy, um, and it's a smaller buck decoy, um, his whole demeanor changed and it was almost like he immediately wanted to apologize. Like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, oh, oh, no. like, I'm not interfering. Uh, you know, he still came to within bow range, just kind of inspecting and looking around. So, I mean, I mean, it's neat just to see that just, you know, the more you can learn about deer behavior, the better hunter you can be. So uh, I, I relish all those opportunities. So, but, but yeah, my son shot a, shot a buck during bow season, uh, two years ago that we decoyed in. So uh, that, that's a memory we'll always have. So, you know, like calling or anything else, you know, they only work a fraction of the time, but they're a lot of fun to use. And uh, man, when they do work, uh, that adds a whole new element to the hunt. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've had, uh, I've never killed a, a buck over a decoy, but I've, I've used one a few times and, and had some, uh, just some pretty cool interactions like you were talking about there with, with some, you know, smaller bucks and stuff coming in and, and bristling up like they were bad and you know, just, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat to just to see that interaction between, between the deer and the decoy. That's right. And I tell you, if particularly for folks in the Midwest um, or, or I guess any area that's really open, um, I would absolutely try a decoy. Like if you're not doing that, you know, we have so much cover on our property now purposely, you know, even in our old fields that, uh, you know, in many cases we just, just can't see all that far certainly not as far as we used to be able to, but man, if you're in an open environment um, where deer could see that from a long way, man, you can call deer in from a long ways, you know, uh, with, with the use of a decoy. So uh, I, if you haven't tried it, uh, that could be a fun new tactic for folks this year. I would definitely give it a shot. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kip, thanks so much for uh, yeah, being willing to come back on the show to talk about the, the rut with me. I, I enjoyed it as always, and I know our, our listeners will as well. Appreciate your time. All right. Well, thank you. I always have a good time talking with you and, and talking deer. So uh, I'm a big fan of the show. Uh, uh, so I'm proud to be on it and uh, hopefully share some information with folks that uh, will either uh, teach them a little bit or, or maybe make them laugh. Maybe I can entertain them a little bit anyway. So, uh, hey, thanks for having me, G. Good luck the rest of the season. Yep, you too. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Kip Adams. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends. Mm -hmm.